0: You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and finally, we are together again. Andrew Kingsley is with me. We have not done this since my wedding anniversary, December the 12th, 2016. It's currently January 26th. Yeah. Of 2017. And and, and look, I'll be honest, it has a lot to do, well, it has a lot to do with the holidays, so we ran into Christmas and all of that. But it also kind of has to do with the book of Ezekiel. Yeah. It. Uh, it's a very, uh, what's the right word? Heavy book? Yes. Does that makes sense? Yes, very. Did you say heady or heavy? Yeah, both. Yeah, I oh, think it's I both. said heady. Heady. I'll add heavy to Thinking it. Book, give like yeah. the, the hippie slang to it. Yeah. Uh, but it is. It, it's. It's good, and there's certainly some really interesting things to talk about. And I'm not trying to get our listeners uh, to walk away from this one because, uh, you know, we got a lot of interesting things to talk about today. It's just, it's harder to prep for these episodes than, say, you know, John or Yeah, something we spend a lot more time in that are much more familiar with. And that's the point of doing it. I mean, if we say mm-hmm. the 66, then we've got to cover everything yeah and so that that's what gets us into books like jeremiah and ezekiel and um mm-hmm. we've done another hard one we have done isaiah but we didn't publish that yeah we've done daniel and daniel yeah so yeah. all the major Still have prophets i do like lamentations
1: i don't yeah. know leviticus i always do that oh yeah leviticus, leviticus. Will be fine.
0: Eh, maybe <laughs> <laughs> uh but but this It's fun working with you, though, Andrew. Of course. It's really.
1: Yeah, it's the highlight of your month. Uh,
0: Sadly, it it is one of the highlights (laughs) of my month. Uh, So, we are jumping back in with a long stretch of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapters 25 through 32. And the reason we're covering all of these together today is because they all have to do with um, prophecies or oracles against. The nations, we'll just say, oracles against the nations. These are nations that are nearby. Um, you've got Moab, Edom, Philistia, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, Egypt. So seven nations, and mm-hmm. they're all except for Egypt's pretty far away, but the rest of them are in pretty close proximity. And you see them pop up throughout the Old Testament. And the bottom line here is that um, you know God is going to. To punish them as well as his own nation. Up to this point, first 24 chapters of Ezekiel, it's all been about Judah, Jerusalem, why God is punishing them, bringing Babylon to them. And it's an Babylon's an interesting omission. You read about the demise of Babylon in Isaiah. Um, I think Jeremiah also, that after God has used Babylon to destroy his people then he will punish Babylon for their sins you don't have anything like that in Ezekiel to my knowledge yeah this Uh is most
1: of the well everything we've looked at so far has been totally centered on the nation of Israel Yeah, we talked about them being a faithless bride we talked about Ahola and Aholiba as these women that are uh, shamelessly committing adultery paying other people to allow them to do that um, instead of the other way around, which was Ezekiel said, you know, it's not even that kind of scenario. yeah um, this is the first time we see where like the other side of the coin um, is going to be punished as well. So obviously, in order for Judah to commit that um, treason against God and as he compares it to adultery, there has to be another party you know involved in this. And when we get into the chapters for this week, we're going to find out, I think there's there's seven of them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yep. How about that? Uh, There's seven of them that are going to receive some punishment. And it's interesting because almost with all seven of these, you kind of, I don't know, almost expect them to be far from God because they're not you know, seeking God, I guess. Um, So when I'm thinking of a place that doesn't have God, what am I going to expect to find there? You know, if it's a godless place, what do you expect to find? Well, probably corruption. um, I don't know. Sexual immorality. Yeah. Just any kind of, lots of injustice, pain, indifference. A lot of poverty. Yeah. Um, That's what I would kind of expect to see. And that's the, kind of world Judah was supposed to be a light in and kind of show them the way, but obviously they didn't do that. So we're going to go through these just one at a time and figure out what it was that God was going to punish them for. And in chapter 25, starting verse one, going to verse seven, the first nation that he's going to condemn is Ammon uh, or Ammon. How do you want to say that, Drew? Ammon or Ammon? Ammon. Ammon. Two M's. Ammon. Uh, I think I like Ammon better yeah. than Ammon. Uh, this was Ammon. Hey, it's Jamaican. <laughs> yeah, sure. We might want to edit that out <laughs> at the end. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Ammon was on the east side of the Jordan, <laughs> northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, obviously, they are descendants of Ammon, who was the son of Lot's younger daughter. Uh, you can see that in Genesis nineteen thirty and, and thirty eight. Yes, yes.
0: Uh, yeah you're right. unfortunately
1: yeah that's uh, not a family friendly story there for sure. Uh, frequent frequent wars and animosity between Israel and Ammon um, especially since Ammon was linked to Israel um, as descendants kind of of that nation. Uh, here's their problem. here's what here's the reason for God's punishment on them in verse six because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel. So these people were happy when Jerusalem was destroyed. Remember, uh, in the context, historical context of the book, Jerusalem does wind up being destroyed here, just like Ezekiel is prophesying about. Babylon's going to come in, Nebuchadnezzar's going to come in for this third and final
0: time and just wipe it out. Right, and the way this is structured, and I meant to say this in the beginning, is that we're kind of we're kind of in the section where the people are waiting for the word to come from Jerusalem that it's that it has fallen. Right. I think chapter twenty four Ezekiel says it's under attack. Of course, they had been taken captive, so it had been under attack for several days, but it was yeah. several years. But it's coming to a head, and you know he says something to the effect that. You know, a messenger will give us word when it when it falls, and then right. there's and then the next chapter he's talking about Ammon and the others, yeah. and we don't get the answer until chapter thirty three, right? So it kind of we're in a suspenseful part of the book right now, as mm-hmm. we're just waiting on this messenger to come, right? And uh, you know that kind of fits in with what you were saying a minute ago. Yeah,
1: I'm glad you brought that up because all these surrounding nations know what's going on at this point. Because it's been years since Nebuchadnezzar first went to Jerusalem. Uh, He's been back a second time, and now he's getting very close to going back for the third time. So everybody knows what's happening to Israel, and Ammon's happy about it. They're like, they're they're getting what they deserve. Uh, God says they have malice in their soul against the land of Israel. Because of that, verse 7, God says, I will destroy you. And what happened? Well, there aren't. Any Ammonites today, so that's pretty clear what
0: happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Moab, they start in verse 8 and go to verse 11. Uh, Moab was east of the Dead Sea. These are the descendants of guess who? Moab, the son of Lot's older daughter. And like you mentioned, also Lot. Lot. Uh, Moabites rebelled in the days of Moses uh, and began again, or excuse me, To rebel, They began again to rebel in the days of Elisha. They also actually joined up with the Babylonians in one of the attacks on Judah. You can read about that in 2 Kings 24, verse 2. I believe that's going to be the final attack that's still coming. Uh, But Moab's not uh, happy with Israel anyway. Uh, Verse 8, Because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations, I will give it along with the Ammonites, or I will give it along with the ammonites to the people of the east as a possession. So their problem was they did not have any respect for Israel's God's chosen people. Now, how much of that was Israel's fault, we can discuss either in the next section or in the final section yeah, of the podcast. seeing that
0: might be a philosophical question we could go over. Right. I think it's interesting that perhaps Ammon and Moab made this list not just because of their geographical proximity but because of their biological proximity i mean if they were yeah. descendants of lot both of them then uh they were related to the jews yeah although they weren't jews themselves they were related they uh, having descended from abraham's nephew
1: yeah the next group and, is like that as well the edomites
0: yeah uh, yes uh, these are the descendants of esau right mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah that's a really good point that you bring up um, and after these three, it kind of moves on to some groups that aren't biologically linked to them, but certainly have some significance in the history of Israel. Uh, so that's a good point to bring up. Um, so Edom is the next country, like we mentioned. They start in verse 12 and go just through verse 14. Edom is south of the Dead Sea. Like you mentioned, these are the descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Israel, Um Edom's hatred for Israel is evident throughout their history together. They took advantage of every opportunity they had to oppress Israel. Edom also participated in the Babylonian attack that we mentioned a moment ago from 2 Kings 24. Um, They perhaps even occupied territory in southern Judah. Now here's their guilt from verse 12. Because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, I will make it desolate. So basically because they were interested in getting their vengeance on Israel, maybe going all the way back to the days of Jacob and Esau, um, God says they're going to receive punishment for doing that. So basically none of these three nations that probably should have taken up the side of God here and God's chosen people, for whatever reason, Edom was vengeful. Um, Moab just didn't really buy into the fact that they were supposed to be God's chosen people and Ammon was just mad. Um, so rather than siding with God and the people of God, they choose to be you know, happy when misfortune comes in the way of Israel and they get punished for it. Um, now these next ones are not biologically linked, but they are historically significant to Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And verse 15 through 17, you have Philistia mentioned. Everybody knows who the Philistines are. Um, their problem is the same problem that we just read with the Edomites. Verse 15, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. That, I mean, I don't know how describe. else you can describe deep-seated hatred yeah. than by saying malice of soul longing to destroy in never-ending enmity. <laughs> that's that's pretty descriptive. Uh yeah, they just hate them, And so their punishment yeah. is they will God will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Hmm. That's Philistia. And that's now,
0: just one chapter. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now we've come to the beginning of chapter 26. And oh, we got 7 to go. Yeah, uh, but we're 20.
0: I'm sure we're going to
1: yeah, we'll pick up the pace here. Summarize it. Yeah, we'll pick it up. Um, Tyre is the next one. Now, they go all the way from chapter 26 to um, nearly the end of chapter 28.
0: And that's interesting because Tyre is one of the smaller, I don't even know if you call it a nation. It was more of a city-state, right? Right, yeah. Um, I just I thought that was interesting that they got so much time. But, you know, Jesus talked about Tyre. So it was... Yeah a major player in politics around Israel for centuries and centuries.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was only 100 miles away from Jerusalem. Okay. So uh, it's pretty close geographically, 30 yeah. miles away from the Sea of Galilee. Um, two major uh, harbors in the city made Tyre a key city in trade and commerce in the ancient world, like you just mentioned. Uh, rose to prominence in about 1200 B.C., full of rich merchants, um.
0: Yeah, I think about the sea, I think about sailboats. Yeah. You know, it's just the image I get every time I hear the name Tyre. Yeah. And I think of Sidon too, but we'll get to them in a minute. Yeah. They're uh, always mentioned alongside Sidon.
1: Right. Second Samuel 24-7 calls this place a fortress built with great wealth. So it is, Tyre's a really heavily, I guess, fortified, although it might just be
0: they, um, they they went to an island. Didn't they move to an island? I couldn't tell you. I think Anybody. so. I think the original city was on the mainland, and then they moved the capital of the city onto an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Hmm. And that's, you know, it had natural fortifications with the sea around them. And probably yeah. that led, like Edom, Edom was up in the mountains, so they were very boastful about their fortifications. Yeah. And Tyre had the same kind of situation with the sea, though, being their protection.
1: Yeah. Uh, the problem with Tyre, there's a lot of problems with Tyre, and that's why they get so much attention, I guess, is a good explanation for why they have so much here. 26.2 says, Because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the people is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. And then Also, later in chapter 28, verses 2 through 5, basically the gist of this is, because your heart is proud and you have said I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods. And I think technically that's about the prince of Tyre. Um, But, the idea is Tyre is happy with Jerusalem's fall because they somehow can benefit from it one way or the other. And they are because of their success and because of their riches, uh, their heart has become proud and they are basically thinking that they are they are themselves a god, uh, their prince is a god, and they don't need any other god. So the punishment that's going to come, verse 19 of chapter 28, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So there's a, a very, I guess, um, heavy punishment coming to them. Now Sidon, like you mentioned, uh, always mentioned with Tyre, Verses 20 to 24 of chapter 28. That's a lot of numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, Sidon is about 25 miles north of Tyre. It was once more prominent than Tyre, and it would become so once again after Tyre's defeat. Now, this one's a little bit different from the other nations. Every other nation has a because you did this, this will happen. There's no particular because you did this listed for Sidon. Uh, they're just told they're going to get in big trouble. Verse 23 says they're going to have pestilence, blood, and the sword. But we does can...
0: say, though, along in the Sidon section, verse 24, uh, after they're punished, there will be no more a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. I know he doesn't yeah. explicitly say that Sidon did that, but it's suspicious that he mentions that contempt in that yeah. section, so it's kind of implies that they yeah. weren't very helpful to Israel,
1: right? Yeah, they're definitely not trying to be an ally of Israel. If anything, they'd be interested in um, making Babylon their ally. <laughs> their abalot, <Aboli. laughs> abalot. Let's just make Everybody that needs a word. Aboli. Yeah, uh, to make Babylon their ally. There we go. Uh, then Israel for sure. Probably my guess would be, and this is pure speculation, that their guilt is very similar to Tyre's, uh, because they're also a wealthy city, not quite as wealthy at Tyre at this point, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they will be after the punishment gets doled out. And then Egypt gets another big section, similar to the section that Tyre had. Um, It gets three chapters, um, 29, 30, actually it gets four chapters, 29 all the way to 32. Um, Here's the guilt. Because you have said the Nile is mine and I make it, chapter 29, verse 9. So again, much like Tyre making themselves a god because they're so well off, they have done the same thing. The punishment, it shall be made the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations, chapter 29, verse 15. And Certainly there's a lot more description of what goes on with Egypt. But we wanted to give you a basic rundown of all these nations according to their guilt and their punishment. In the next section, we'll dive a little bit deeper. But before we do, there's a point to all of these things. And you already mentioned chapter 28, verse 24, um, which basically tell the people that they will no longer have a thorn in their side to distract them from serving God. So this is going to remove all the distractions near and around Jerusalem, around what's left of Israel. Um, so that they can try to serve their purpose as a light to the nations. Um, And we have a lot more to say about that, but we will continue in on that in the next section, and then when we come back, finally, to apply.
0: Now, uh there's we could go one or two ways with the second section of of the podcast today. We could open up lots of cans of worms or just one or two. There are so many chapters that I think we need to just pick something to think about and just stay with it because you can't touch on all of the things. It would take hours and hours and hours. And there's so much colorful, poetic language in here and prophetic language. I think we should at least just start with this one thing that I that I want to talk about, and um, you know maybe that maybe that's all we'll have. That sounds good to me. So I, I hear people go to this section of Ezekiel a lot, looking for the origin of Satan, like the you know so. The prevailing theory, and is one I agree with, is that the devil was created as an angel, that he rebelled against God, and that God cast him out of heaven and condemned him to hell, along with a lot of other angels, and that the devil was perhaps an archangel, a higher rank than other angels, in the way that Michael is an archangel, mm-hmm. a special angel. Now, we get that through deduction. You know, it's not revealed. If it had been revealed, then the story would be somewhere in the text. But we deduce that from the fact that, you know, we say, well, Satan isn't God. Yeah. Because he's limited by God. He's not equal to God. And if you're not equal to God, you cannot be God. Mm-hmm. That's common sense. And so he's not God. He's not human. He obviously has abilities human beings don't have. He's not an animal even though he appeared as an animal in Genesis 3. So yeah. if he's not God, he's not human, he's not an animal, what's left among God's creation in, for, in terms of intelligent beings? Well, mm-hmm. it's got to be an angel. And he seems to fit alongside angels in terms of his abilities. Yeah. So you start there, well, he's an angel. Well, if he's an angel, what's he doing in hell instead of in heaven? And in 2 Peter 2, 4 and following, you can read about angels who rebelled and were cast into outer darkness with chains of gloomy darkness, I think. Yeah. And, you know, there are a few other references to rebelling angels, but that's the strongest one. And still, it doesn't say Satan, the adversary, the devil from of old, you know, he was cast down. He appears before God in Job 1 and in Job 2 with the sons of God, which we usually take that to mean the angelic beings. Mm-hmm. And then you have a, I think it's a vague reference. Some people disagree with me in Luke ten twenty, which has Jesus to say after the disciples come back casting out demons and they're you know, rejoicing that they were able to cast out demons in the name of Christ. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I think that's vague because as we're about to see in prophetic language, any ruler who is taken, who is punished or has had his position removed or has been exiled or killed, assassinated, mm-hmm. a lot of times it will say that he had fallen, uh, fallen like a star, maybe, or he is a falling star, or he's fallen from heaven. And yeah. Jesus, you know, to get technical about it, in Luke 10 20, Jesus is saying the lightning was coming from heaven, not Satan, but. You know, maybe, maybe he was saying that he was there when Satan was cast out of heaven and that's an explicit reference. Maybe mm-hmm. not. It's just not clear enough for me to say, yeah, I know for sure that narrative is right there in Luke ten twenty. So we have to put all of this together. And I still, I repeat, I think it's a sound deduction to say that Satan began as an angel and he was cast out of heaven when he rebelled against God. Mm-hmm. And the strongest passage of scripture I have on that is is Second Peter 2. Right. not Luke yeah. ten twenty, although that may add a little to it. Okay, now with all that being said, what I want to address is using Isaiah 14, where the character there is referred to as Lucifer in the King James Bible, mm-hmm. and Ezekiel chapter 28. Can we use those two passages of prophecy to describe the origin of Satan? And I think that it's pretty clear we should not do that. I was about to. Can I weigh in before we get into this? I'll just tell you what
1: my inclination is going into it, which may be right or wrong. You can help me out on this. And this is something before we had Mass Record, much earlier today, we had talked about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going into these prophecies, like you had mentioned, I think it's good to think about if I am a Jewish exile in this place called. Um, Tel-Abib, that's where they were, right? Um, I've forgotten the name of the place. It's been oh. so long since we did it. Kebar wherever Canal. They are, yeah, they're by the Kebar Canal, wherever they are. Um, if I'm one of those people there that's just been driven out of Jerusalem and I hear this guy standing up talking about all these things, how am I going to think about it? Mm-hmm. And I think it's best. You know, a lot of this history stuff is boring. Some of it's pretty exciting. A lot of the history and trying to learn about the Old Testament world, the ancient Near East, um, it's it's not that exciting to learn a lot about it. But it's certainly time, not as
0: interesting as a story about the devil getting cast out of heaven,
1: right? No. but I do think in order to properly see, you know, what Ezekiel twenty-eight is about, because a lot of it does sound like we're talking about. Satan, you know, verse 13, you were in, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Yeah. Uh, On the day you were created, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I know Mm -hmm. you want to talk about that for a little bit. I placed you, you were on the mountain of God. You were blameless until unrighteousness was found in you. Skip down, um... Unrighteousness was found in you and the abundance of your trade. You were filled with violence. You sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, in the midst of the stones of fire. Yeah. So, I mean. I mean,
0: if you, and and don't forget verse 2, with the exception of, say, to the prince of Tyre, you've got. Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Of course, you leave that part out because that has to do with Tyre's actual location. Yet you are but a man, again, not an angel, a man, and no God. But, you know, people look at, they start right there. Um, Well, can I ask you a question? Sure.
1: I don't know the answer to this, so I'm not sure I should ask the question. So in 28, at the beginning, this is something I was really confused about when I did the initial study for this, say to the Prince of Tyre in verse 2. Then when we get down to verse 11, we're in a different section. Raise a lamentation for the King of Tyre. So are we talking about, and I know the term like Prince and King is pretty interchangeable, but it seems like there's just as many opinions as there are smart people about whether or not is this the same guy or are we talking about because I seem to remember reading that the first section is about the the actual like the king that rules over Tyre and then 11 and following is about like the real king of Tyre who is Satan you know, like the prince of the power of the air okay okay So any do you have any thoughts on that like well, I said I ask it not knowing I the think answer.
0: that I think that you you start with the simplest interpretation Yeah which is that you know if it says king of tyre then we're talking about a ruler of the city of tyre since we're interpreting all the others as literal yeah. cities anyway i mean we don't say Ammon is actually about you know the third region of hell and yeah. uh, dante's sixth circle of hell is represented by sidon you know we don't we don't do that with the other cities we say egypt is egypt and tyre i mean sidon is sidon and etc We get to this, though, and we have the story, okay? We have the narrative already in our head that came to us by deduction. It came to most people just by, you know, folklore, hearing it, you know, by osmosis. They didn't study it or deduce it. But we didn't get it straight out of any text in the Bible. We have this story in our head, and we're looking for it all over the place.
1: That that Satan was an angel and
0: he was cast Right, and anything that's similar to what we've already got in our head, it clicks together without us being critical about it. And yeah. so I know I'm getting away from your question. I did not notice that distinction until you just pointed it out. So I don't know that I can speak intelligently about it. But I'm going to say, you know, I think Prince of Tyre, King of Tyre, I think these are two poems or two songs or whatever that are put together here in chapter twenty-eight because they fit together, and yeah. they're just distinguished by that language that prince and t- prince and king are interchangeable.
1: That's what I'm inclined to think.
0: That that's far simpler than to say there's some connection like there's a there's a like the prince of Tyre is Satan's string puppet, and if Satan moves his right arm, so does the prince of Tyre. Yeah. that's kind of the idea that. That I thought I heard you saying that you'd heard before. Not, well, not that of, you are saying that's what it like is. Like it
1: but. would be that, you know, basically he's just saying that tire would be underneath. And I really wish I had the note of what... I just didn't write down because this is one of those it's things pure where... pure
0: speculation. There's absolutely no you start reading basis about it. in fact. Yeah,
1: everybody's just speculating, so I didn't want to spend a, a great amount of my time reading what everybody speculates. But I'm with you. I think this is, you know, we have to think about how this... Book of Prophecy was written, you know. This isn't. This is not like a chronological thing, most likely, where Ezekiel stands up one day and just spouts off all these things about Tyre in one sitting, and then he's done. He
0: never mentions Tyre again. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, why in the world would, in the middle of all of this, and you've you've kind of already said this, but he's in an emergency situation here. They're awaiting news about their homeland. And he said, you know, I was thinking about Satan the other day. (laughs) And God told me about his birth. Yeah. You know, and I just want to talk about that. I know we've been talking about who who came before. I know we've been talking about Philistia and Ammon and Moab and Edom. Just put a little bookmark in that while I talk about Satan.
1: Now I think I can like verse thirteen where it says, you know, you were in Eden, the Garden of okay. God. Every well, person. let's go through that. Far ahead?
0: No, no, uh, let's do this. Okay. Um, I want I want to start with you know verse two, and some of these other other details, and just go through and ask, you know, could there be another interpretation? Especially since we know that nobody was talking about this Satan as a created angel that fell from heaven at this point in. In history I what mean, this, would have
1: made the most sense to the mind of the people sitting on the side of the key canal?
0: right yeah and and could it possibly describe a ruler entire so what about is it is it true that rulers emperors kings in ancient times claimed to be divine a hundred percent true most definitely right all the time. Not unusual in the least. And then we have the added descriptive term, I sit on the seat
1: of God in the heart of the seas, which yes. you brought up that I didn't even think about.
0: Well now, you know, in Revelation you got the beast coming out of the sea and all that. So sea is definitely an apocalyptic symbol of something, yeah. but
1: But also it is a tire literal, is in the sea. Yeah. Yeah. It's a descriptive term of tire.
0: And I still think that the easiest interpretation of the simplest is usually the best. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's go over to um, even verse 12. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You know, that sounds like an angel, perfect in beauty. Well, could this not be the way people looked at the king of Tyre or the way that he looked at himself in his mirror, that he was, you know, no flaws, no errors in him, that he was yeah. perfect?
1: Well, he's in charge of this city that's a leading city of the time that's incredibly wealthy. Yes. So yeah, you would imagine that the king definitely fits that. You know, I'm thinking of the you could describe the city in a lot of these ways that
0: we just don't you know, we don't get the benefit 13. of knowing these people yeah. as well as we do with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. But I think if you study Nebuchadnezzar and his attitude and his pride especially in passages like Daniel 4, but also Daniel 2 and 3. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Nebuchadnezzar was extremely proud and vain. And that was pretty typical of guys that were given the power to just throw people in furnaces or in lion's dens. I realize that wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, but you know, that was typical of, you'd think of Pharaoh in Egypt during Moses' day. You know, the guy wouldn't listen to reason and they had harems full of concubines, and they had riches yeah. and just all this stuff. You know, they were was never
1: Xerxes or Artaxerxes that had his soldiers whip the sea because it that was wouldn't... Xerxes. Yeah, crazy. Cra- yeah, they whip Was it the ocean wasn't calm enough for them to? I forgot. Yeah, he the got story. mad
0: at an ocean. <laughs> yeah, and ordered his men to. To flail at it.
1: Yeah, he thought he was in a position of authority over the ocean.
0: To punish the ocean. To
1: chastise the ocean for being rough on a windy day or a stormy day.
0: This is the guy, by the way, that you read about in Esther. Yeah. Who comes back from that trip where he got beat like a dog by the Greek city-states. And he comes back and, um, you know, Esther's afraid to go see him unannounced because he could just order the queen's death, right? if he's having a bad day. So these are the kinds of people, of course, they would think of themselves as the signet of perfection. How do you act and behave that way if you don't have any criticisms about yourself? No self-doubt. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Again, you've already pointed out, Tyre was very prosperous at this time. And I also think it's interesting, with Egypt, uh, with Tyre, Edom,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a lot of these places were special merely because of where they happened to be located. Right, Edom had the mountains, Egypt had the Nile, Tyre had the sea. And who made those things? God made those things. So mm-hmm. their pride was misplaced. Uh, I, I want to get over to Isaiah in a minute. So, so verse 14. Now, a Hebrew is hearing this, uh, an Israelite. You were an anointed cherub, or an anointed guardian cherub. And uh, another translation has covering cherub. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what would an Israelite think of? They would think of the cherubim on either side of the Ark of the Covenant with wings outstretched towards one another, covering or guarding the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. Right. And so. I know there were cherubim guarding the Garden of Eden. To my knowledge, neither one of them became Satan. Satan's never called a cherub. Uh, you know, he was some kind of an angel, perhaps. Um, but he was, you know, he was put in place to guard, you know, special, a special place, a special city. And he, he abused that privilege. Mm -hmm. Now, can I go over to Isaiah real quick? Now, Isaiah is special to this conversation because it's a similar oracle or taunt that is used to describe the origin story of Satan. And uh, the name Lucifer appears in the King James Version, which is translated Daystar in the ESV that I'm reading from. Mm -hmm. Um, Verse 12 of Isaiah 14 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Stars of God is taken to mean angels of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. And so, they're like, well, there it is. That's where Satan came from. Ignoring the very first few verses of Isaiah 14 that introduce this, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, which would have been Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's a case, both in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, of wanting something so badly that we come up with the wrong interpretation. Yeah, I don't know if that. Now, so let me just put this one last theory out, and then if you got anything to say, feel free. Um, so you know, some people may say, well, the origin story about Satan that was known to Ezekiel and Isaiah made the perfect metaphor for the King of Babylon and the Prince of Tyre. That that's a that's kind of an in between theory that, okay, he used the origin story of Satan. To describe what was going to happen to them, and he's saying you're you're going to fall just like Satan fell. If God could bring Satan down, he certainly is not going to have any trouble with you, Prince of Tyre. Yeah, that and that would be fine with me if that story had been circulating around in those days. And I, to my knowledge, it it had not. Now I know there's some apocryphal literature out there that does contain elements of this. However, I don't believe that it goes back to the days of Ezekiel or Isaiah.
1: Yeah. I think that's a pretty good wrap-up of it. Um, looking through here, trying to see if there's anything else I want to add. But I think the the most basic form of this is, can all these things that we might fit into our narrative of Satan, can all these things just be descriptive you know, I guess poetic license to describe the king of Tyre, certainly. So all these things fit in that we've mentioned about, you know, him being in Eden full of wisdom and beauty, like you've done such a good job lying out about the guardian cherub, being in the mountain of God, all these things. Um, Certainly terms he could use to describe the king of Tyre, but to be speaking obviously in poetic fashion, not in a literal way and saying, the king of Tyre, you were literally in Eden, in the garden of God, and you were literally covered with every precious stone.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: for that sake of that argument, Satan wasn't covered in precious stones either. You yeah. know, yeah. Uh, We're obviously referring to the city here when we start talking about all the wealth and the stones that matches up with what Tyre had. So I think most simple interpretation here, like you mentioned, is probably the best one to keep. Everything else beyond that is fun to talk about, but at the end of the day, we can't say that it's any more than speculation.
0: What can we learn from Ezekiel 25 through 32? We can learn a lot of interesting things, and there's some beautiful poetry here, some very interesting descriptions. Uh, you can even get into a discussion about angels and the devil. But um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, how does we should be asking? How does this instruct my life today? Yeah. And so, uh, after seeing what it said to the original readers, we want to look at it now in our perspective and. I want to pull out one very important application, perhaps too, which is that the God we read about in the Bible was not just the God of Israel. He's, he was and is the God of the whole earth. And that is why you have this list of seven nations in Ezekiel 25 through 32. God has never just been concerned about Israel or just Mm -hmm. been concerned about Judah and Jerusalem, or the captives, or the exiles, or the diaspora. He has always been concerned about the whole earth, but his plan was to bless the whole earth through one nation, the nation of Israel. Um, That's what he said to Abraham as far back almost as we can go in biblical history, when he said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Genesis 12, 1-3. Uh, we lose sight of that i think and we often hear today even in politics and especially in certain corners of religion that you know the the descendants of abraham physical israel are god's special chosen people and um you know i don't i don't know what that means to everybody about the rest of the world mm-hmm. uh, when you say that what it what does that mean we are you know the non-jews yeah and um I think we're missing the fact that there is, according to Romans 9, 6, and a lot of other important passages, Galatians 6, 16, and others, uh, today God has a spiritual Israel, and He has a spiritual concept of the offspring of Abraham. And those are the those are the saved. And they include ethnic Jews, and they include non-ethnic um spiritual Jews, if you want to look at it that way. But the the language has changed now to describe since his purposes through Abraham's family have changed, have been fulfilled yeah. in bringing Jesus Christ into the world. Now somebody says, well, what about all of those Gentiles who were alive um, when the old covenant was in effect? You know, okay, so God cared about the whole world. Why did he just give the law to this small group of people for so many mm-hmm. centuries? Well, I think he's very clear in places like the book of Romans that he didn't forget about the Gentiles, but that they had a law to follow just like the Jews had to follow a law. Paul was very interested in showing in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. He addresses the Gentiles' sins as well as the Jews' sins. And the Jews' sins were transgressions of the law of Moses. But he says in Romans 2.14 and 15, that the Gentiles had the law speaking of I believe the moral law
1: mm-hmm.
0: they had the law written on their hearts in other words, they knew innately that it was wrong to murder, that it was wrong to commit adultery, to steal from somebody mm-hmm. to hate your neighbor etc things that all human beings know uh, just as much as they know their inalienable rights you know we've we've gotten these things. They are in our DNA because we've been yeah. created in the image of God, and the Gentiles are expected to follow those, not the not the law of Moses. It was only given to Moses and Israel, according to uh, the end of Exodus thirty-four. But um, all of us have been for all time under God. That's the bottom line. Right. So I, I wanted us to remember that. That's one application. Yeah. Now the promise
1: is opened up. Well, and it always was right, so people could join, yeah, the Jewish nation. But now it's you know not based on your lineage; it's based on your faith. Yes, it's the promises of a different, the same but a little bit different. Yeah, nowadays. Yeah, um, I really just got one big one that's kind of two applications, but when you read about Moab and Seer. Saying that the house of Judah is just like all the other nations, you know, denying that Mm -hmm. Israel's the people of God. When I first read that, I was like, well, wait. It's chapter 25, verse 8, by the way. Yeah. When I first read that, I was like, wait. At this point, we just got through reading about all this stuff about how Judah is just like all Mm -hmm. the other nations. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to be God's chosen people, but now they're just as bad, and God says, even worse than all the surrounding nations. It says the surrounding nations are embarrassed when they look at you because you guys are so bad. In particular, he mentioned Philistia. I know in a previous episode, so even the Philistines were looking at what was going on in Jerusalem and like, oh man, that's bad. I can't believe they're doing that. Um, <laughs> So I wonder, you know, obviously God is, is taking issue here with the fact that they're not really disrespecting the people of Israel, they're disrespecting the promise God made to them. Um, so that's why I think Moab's in trouble. Um, but I wonder how much of that perception is the house of Judah's fault. You know, Moab, I don't think it's unwarranted. I don't think Moab's just kicking their feet up and looking at a righteous nation and saying, you know what, they're just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Their God's not that great. This is, I mean, Judah has brought that upon themselves. And we also mentioned this earlier, that, you know, the way we carry ourselves, the way that Judah carried themselves, reflected poorly upon God back then. So not only were they making a bad name for themselves, they were making a bad name for God as well. Because these other nations are taking notice and saying, you know, well, you guys are doing exactly what we're doing. I guess your God must be like our God. And if you're getting conquered, your God must not be as strong as our God. Right. You know, so I think Judah is a little bit... And it's
0: not just... Uh, as you said, how much is it their fault? I think also, you know, we have to ask how much did they want that to be true? How much did they want to be like all the nations? Yeah, that's because In 1 true. Samuel 8, they got into a monarchy. How? Uh, they went to Samuel and they said, we want a king like all the other nations. And so they got what they wanted. You know, they became like all the other nations and they were brought down and they lost their distinctiveness and lost their purpose in becoming, they were supposed to be special. This is kind of like the the mirror image of the last point that we made that, you know, God is over everybody, but he did yeah. have a special purpose with these people that by this point, at least in the eyes of, of Moab, had, had been lost. Yeah. And whose fault was it? And how much did they want it to be like that? And us as the church, if we look just like the world, whose fault is that? The worlds are ours. And then how much is it that we want to be? And I remember Jesus saying, you know, at the end of Matthew 5, what do you do more than others? You know, don't the Gentiles do the same thing as this? Don't they hate their enemies and love their friends? Yeah. And so uh, it's a very relevant question for us to ask ourselves. Definitely so. You know, we look around and there's many
1: times there's a very negative perception Of Christianity, of people who claim to be Christians. And as bad as that is for the crowd of Christians who are genuinely seeking to follow Christ the best they can, I'm not saying, you know, in spite of all the perfect Christians out there, but I'm saying, you know, you can tell when you bump into somebody who is at least trying their hardest to follow Christ. And when you follow and then when you bump into somebody who's just like you know, that's just something they're involved with, kind of like, you know, they'd be involved with a um, just any other kind of club or something, or, you know, to be a fan of a team or something like that. Um, and yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of the negative perception of Christians now, a lot of that, you know, is due to just people having a bad attitude. But a lot of that also comes back on us, I think, or on people who wear the name Christian and are out there doing all sorts of things, behaving in all sorts of ways, um, exemplifying things that certainly Christ did not when he was on earth. And so I think that has really ruined it for, you know, like, for example, I think a great example is a lot of Christians who might seem to be very hateful and vengeful um, and make a very public display of that. You know, that display kind of ruins it for the rest of us who aren't like that. Because now everybody thinks when they think, Christian, okay, well, they're that group of people that's just, you know, if you're not exactly like they are, they're going to stand on a street corner where the sign says turn or burn. Mm -hmm. You know, and while there's, you know, there's definitely a place for warning people about sin, but... There's no place for hating people. Right, and that's, Mm -hmm. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And that's just
0: one... Thing of yeah. you know you you picked an example. Yeah, we're Little talking tiny, about just yeah. overall. Do we look different? The bottom line is we should look different. Uh, there shouldn't be any Moab's in the world. Yeah, for the church, but there are yeah. saying the house of God is like all other nations. Yeah, the church is like everything else. And the only thing that's going to kill that perception
1: is going to be us changing ourselves. Yeah. So I wanted to be careful. I didn't want to sit here and just say, Well, all these other Christians are doing this and that and the other, ruin it for everybody else, ruin it for me and mm-hmm. all my friends, and da da. I'm not trying to say that. The way that we change this, I'm not gonna go start campaigning to all my Christian friends and all of this stuff. I think the where it begins, where it starts, is with you work, working mm-hmm. on making sure that when Moab looks at you, they're not saying, oh, well, they're just like everybody else or like all the other nations. Mm-hmm. I think that's where it begins.
0: Yeah. Uh, is that all? Uh, I'm out. Okay, I'm good. Exhausted. Well, I think that's, that's enough and uh, we're about out of time. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us on the 66 and uh, we're ready in the new year here to get back on track and finish the book of Ezekiel. And we've got We already know the next two, maybe three books we're going to do. We're very excited about what's coming up. And only two more episodes on Ezekiel. Okay, we've got two more episodes on Ezekiel. So Mm -hmm. make sure that you join us for that as we finish this uh, great journey up. Um, Contact us in the meantime between episodes at akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook. Keep up with what we're doing at the66.net. Next week, maybe among other things, i got to look at Andrew's outline, but I know that we're going to be talking about the shepherds of Israel right? and the shepherd of Israel, and I'm excited to do that. So mm-hmm. join us when we talk about that next time on The 66.